Right now, the week ahead will include a close eye on the impact of the latest strain of COVID, plus the closely watched report on consumer prices. We're joined by Andrew Bush, former chief markets intelligence officer at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He's an economist found online at andrewbush.com. Uh, Andy, let, let's begin with the impact of this variant. I mean, we, we saw what it did to the markets, lots of volatility. Uh, can, can we, it, maybe it's too early for us to gauge the kind of economic impact it has. I I mean, do people shut things down when they hear about a new variant? No, but they get worried about it. And we've seen some investment banks start to downgrade their early assessments of what 2022 is going to be like. Uh, I think Goldman cut their GDP forecast for the U.S. by like 0.3%. But here's the thing. I actually believe, I'm an optimist, as you know, but I actually believe this is part of the evolution of this virus. And having written a book on viruses and their impact on the economy, this is following the template for how these viruses interact, how they mutate, and they they generally mutate towards a form of the virus that is less um, uh, that, that has a less lethality and a more uh, more contagious. And that I think that's what we're seeing with Omicron. That's the early news. That's what Dr. Fauci was talking about today, and why the markets have rallied. And so moving forward, uh, if if you're looking at the economy and especially thinking about investing, you, you just have to get ready for this volatility, right? That's not ending anytime soon. No, this is the game now. I mean, we're buffeted by all sorts of things around uh, Omicron and the virus. And then also there's going to be some things that are going to be happening, I think, with central banks, especially next week. The Fed's going to meet and we're going to get the CPI number out. And that's going to have a big impact on how, let's say, Build Back Better gets done or how the Fed reacts to their tapering. Yeah. Talk about inflation. We were told it was transitory. Now I don't think the Fed is using that term anymore. <laughs> uh, I think they've sort of changed their tune on that. Uh, yeah, pe people don't grasp. I mean, that, that eats into your bank account, your portfolio. It, it, it Maybe you're making more money at work, but it's just eating into that because everything costs more. Yeah, I mean, let's say you got a 4% rise last year. Well, if inflation's running at 6.2%, you just lost 2.2%. So that's how you have to look at it. And of course, the people that it impacts the most are low-income to middle-income workers because they spend more of their money on things that are going up rapidly, like gasoline prices. So inflation's really a big deal. Um, I was on many times with you over the last couple of months saying this is not transitory. This is something that we're very worried about. And finally, the Fed and other economists started picking back up on that. So I'm glad to see the Fed's moving forward, that they're going to be tapering faster, likely next week, and probably raising interest rates by the summer. Thanks so much, Andrew Bush. You can find him online at andrewbush.com. The value of Bitcoin plunged over the weekend, falling 20% at one point on Saturday. Let's find out what's going on. Jeff Kilberg, Chief Investment Officer at Sanctuary Wealth here in Chicago. Uh, Jeff, help us to understand what went on with crypto over the weekend. Well, Cisco, we, we saw a lot of illiquidity. And this kind of goes and speaks to the fact that there's a reason why stocks don't trade over the weekend. And this is kind of different between the institutional world that we live in and traditional finance. And then there's a retail cryptocurrency world. So what you saw, Cisco, was you saw the price go from $50,000 all the way down to $43,000, a 20% loss. Actually, on some exchanges, which there's exchanges everywhere trading Bitcoin, and that's part of the problem of regulating the price of Bitcoin. But on some exchanges, Cisco, it went down to $28,000. So that type of illiquidity, when no one was actually there to trade and support, 
bids and offers in the marketplace, you have wild volatility. Now, of course, volatility is inherent in Bitcoin as well as other cryptocurrencies, but I think this really speaks to the fact that we need more and more reasons to regulate. We did see BITO, that's the Bitcoin ETF that tracks the futures, which is trade the CME exchange, which is a regulated entity. So I think it really speaks volumes, but Look, I think this is a bit of a, a problem in the bigger picture, Cisco, as Bitcoin is supposed to be a safe haven. Bitcoin is supposed to be non-correlated to the stock market. And as of late, it's been very correlated equities. And when it comes to those dips, you, you mentioned, I mean, it's trading all the time. Uh, the regulators talking about what they can do about this. Would that, in your estimation, be a good thing to make it so that it traded more like stocks and not all over the place? I mean, you, you could, in the middle of the night, lose a bunch of money. I think that's right, Cisco. And I go back to when I started my career in the 1990s, the Chicago Board of Trade. We traded everything in the pit. Now, obviously, things become more electronic, trading futures and also stocks. But there's a reason why there's time limits. There's a reason why there's actually trading sessions. New York Stock Exchange is traded, you know, Central Time, 8.30 to 3 o'clock every day for a reason, by design. So I think as we see these two worlds collide of this uh, retail crypto Reddit community coming into the more institutional world, I think you will see some type of uh, you know, rails put on the trading hours of Bitcoin or Ethereum. I think that speaks volumes and it's opportunity. I do have a, a big belief still in Bitcoin and Ethereum and cryptocurrencies, but I think we have to really watch this world evolve and get a little bit more tra uh, traditional in nature, not essentially in structure, but more in nature of when you actually are allowed to trade these products. Okay, so it is evolving, as you mentioned, and we don't exactly know what regulation may look like. Um, what should investors do in the meantime? I mean, just if, if you're going to have it, have it for the long haul, have it as that safe haven, and don't worry about those big dips over the weekends and the overnights. Well, go back to you know decades ago when you talked about cost averaging into a blue chip name. Let's talk about GE or GM. If you wanted to put a couple hundred dollars every month towards a name like that, you cost average over a year. I think it's a very similar approach to Bitcoin Ethereum. I like BITO. That is the ETF, the ProShares ETF that tracks the futures price of Bitcoin. So you feel comfortable and some safety that it's regulated by the CME group. So I think if you were to go average into a BITO ETF, I think that makes sense, but Bitcoin will continue its rise higher, but the correlation between equities and cryptocurrencies is a little bit off right now, but that also provides opportunity, Cisco. So you would not advise us to stay up all night long every Saturday hoping to buy a dip? Well, you can just call me because I'm up all um, <laughs> idea looking at charts trying to figure it all out, but uh, no, I don't advise it. It doesn't work well, but luckily my wife has uh, stayed with me for 20 years, so so far so good. <laughs> all right. That's Jeff Kilberg, Chief Investment Officer at Sanctuary Wealth here in Chicago. Cash, credit, debit, and totally free. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. A rise in organized retail theft, worrying workers, in some cases scaring away shoppers. Let's discuss the problem. Ali Marotti's here, restaurants and retail reporter. You read her online and in print in Crane's Chicago Business. Uh, Ali, I guess this is made worse in some respects by the fact that these videos are taken. Everyone has a phone and it goes viral. And so instead of just hearing about it, everyone is able to see about this. It makes it feel like... Like it's it's really pretty widespread. Yeah, for sure. I was just reading a story um, about the similar issue this morning in the Washington Post, and they said that there are some imitator criminals out there. So this is just spreading. 
So what are they finding that they're doing? It, it is organized. I mean, you see a group of people run into the store and, and run out with stuff in just a matter of seconds. Uh, what do they do? Is there an outlet for them to sell it then? Yeah, for sure. So if you think about it, it's a big difference between just shoplifting, which which retailers have always dealt with and built into their budgets and everything. Um, the organized retail crime, it's often big groups of people that are coming into a store and making off of large hauls of merchandise. Sometimes there's um, a person behind it hiring these people to go in and take the merchandise, and then it's ultimately sold online. Um, Illinois, Illinois Attorney General recently launched a task force, and they just made a pretty big bust on Friday. It was the, the task force's first. They recovered millions of dollars worth of stolen goods from eight storage units throughout the city. Um, and, you know, they said that it's, it's really tied to not just you know, trying to get money by selling this stuff online. But sometimes these rings are involved with other crimes, just guns and drugs, et cetera. So how do they counteract it? I mean, that's one way. Law enforcement, obviously, that's, that's a big way. But stores have to wonder how to make employees feel secure, how to make customers feel secure without having there be, you know, eight armed officers at the doors. Exactly. Yeah. It's a delicate dance these retailers have to play because they don't want to scare off customers or, you know, make them feel too concerned. Um, so what we're seeing in the Chicago area, um, and, you know, and this is stores on the Magnificent Mile, the Gold Coast and other neighborhoods, Wicker Park, Bucktown have been targeted, too. So it's not just downtown shopping districts. Um, we're seeing, you know, security guards being hired. We're seeing shatterproof glass being installed. Some retailers remove all the product off their floor at night and leave the lights on so that anybody can see there's nothing in there to take. Some, um, you know, board up in anticipation of criminal activity. It's really interesting for these workers because at times, if there's something in the national news that may cause some sort of unrest, they're meeting, to, you know, putting their heads together and figuring out, are we going to shut down early tonight? What are we going to do? You know, it's, it's interesting to see how it changes from store to store and how it's a bit of a ripple effect. Thanks so much. Good analysis and details. Ali Marotti, retail and restaurants reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. The only program dedicated to currency events. You're listening to the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Markets are rising. The Dow up 743 points. The Nasdaq up 164. And the S&P is up 68 points. Let's find out what's going on. Gary Kaltbaum is here, president of Kaltbaum Capital Management. You can find him online at GaryK.com. All right, Gary, what's behind what's going on today on the markets? Oh, I think, well, first off, the Dow would drop 2,600 points in three weeks. Uh, so you're going to get bounces. But I think the better news on this latest variant uh, may have changed the playing field. In the last week or so, all the travel stocks were just getting blasted. They're having a very strong day. Economically sensitive areas were getting hit. They're having a strong day. So definite good relief rally. And I actually think this one sticks. And I have not thought that in the, in the last few weeks, I can tell you that. So let's talk about tech stocks. I mean, for for so long, uh, they were sexy. They were the growth areas. They, they were where everyone wanted to be. And, and yet they're kind of lagging today. Uh, well, they've been mauled and uh, they were lagging early. They're coming back a little bit now. Uh, look, the, the bottom line is they've had their way for so long. Markets do have to change a little bit, go from growth to value every now and then. I think there's a component of that. Uh, and the valuations have been in the trees. So maybe something like that's going on. Uh, but definitely they're getting a little bit of traction too today after getting, I, I can tell you, a lot of the small mid cap names have just absolutely crashed 
over the last two, three months, and especially in the last few weeks. So good to see at least an update there. So what do you do as an investor to combat inflation? Because inflation, I mean, literally every day, your portfolio, even if it's growing, it's probably losing its overall real value. Well, you have to be careful. I keep hearing that you have to be in the market uh, because of inflation. But what if the market drops 10% also? So it's really... I tell people on individual basis, do what's best for them. Uh, fighting inflation has to do with how much you're spending and, and what you're spending it on. Uh, but markets, you can, if you try to do too much at the wrong time because of it, you can really get the double whammy. So be very, very careful of that type of talk. And the good news is uh, you have oil prices that have come down markedly in the last couple of weeks, natural gas, iron ore, a few other things. Hopefully the worst is at hand. I do believe things stay elevated for a long time now, but it'd be, it's nice to see uh, some of the prices coming down. And so uh, going forward, those dividend stocks, we worried at the beginning of the pandemic whether they were going to continue to pan out as as a safe haven of sorts because we didn't know if the companies were going to be, going to be able to pay them. Is that still part of a strategy if, if someone's concerned about the volatility and being able to sleep at night? Well, you just got to be careful about that too. The uh, the highest one of the highest yielding dividend stocks is AT and T, which is now paying nine percent. Uh, but the stock's gone from thirty four down to twenty three since May. So nine percent's not helping you on that. So it's okay to go for the high dividend plays. Make sure the stocks are acting appropriately. And remember, you may get nine percent, but if it drops twenty, you're down eleven. Thanks so much. Always good to talk with Gary Kaltbaum, president of Kaltbaum Capital Management. You can find him online at GaryK.com. Following a volatile year in the job market, analysts are looking ahead to trends for the coming year. We're joined by Michelle Reisdorf, a Chicago jobs expert at Robert Half here in Chicago. Uh, Michelle, what are we expecting as far as continued job growth, the availability of jobs, uh, given the fact that, that we've had kind of an uneven bounce back from the pandemic? Pandemic. Yeah, we're still seeing um, really strong job growth, especially going into 2022. Um, you know, the economists are predicting, you know, GDP estimated at a 3.5% growth. And, you know, right now companies are definitely hiring to that. And so if you are a prospective employee, whether you're looking to get a job or, or looking to change jobs, does it, it seem like this is a, a pretty good time and 2022 will continue to be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely certain sectors and industries that still continue to be hot for hiring right now. Um, areas like tech, healthcare, you know, even real estate, um, as companies slowly decide to go back. Uh, remote customer service roles are in high demand and, you know, uh, even transportation. And so if those are in high demand, what are we seeing with wages? Can people expect to uh, maybe make a little more than they would otherwise expect? Yep, it's definitely, you know, we're in a situation of supply and demand, and the demand is very, very high right now. So um, companies definitely are paying higher wages to attract new hires. Um, you know, they've got to get out and be aggressive about getting that talent. And with unemployment continuing to decline, I mean, we're looking at numbers that could be at about three point below 3.5% by 20, end of 2022. And from the employer side, uh, what can they be expecting on these employees? I mean, what will they have to do things beyond salary in order to try to attract them and, and keep them in 2022? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with the shortage of talent, 
you know, companies are definitely having to, you know, look at all their options, uh, especially a lot of employees might have less skill or talent than they're normally used to hiring. So companies should definitely be willing to maybe take in less experienced talent and train them to, uh, you know, just get good talent in general. It's interesting. If you go to the job sites now, uh, let's talk about the way people work. You, you actually see remote work as a filter option because there's just so many remote jobs now. Uh, is that essentially here to stay where, where people will either be allowed to completely work remotely or at least have some sort of a hybrid schedule, if at all possible? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, Omnicrom has definitely given all of us kind of a realization that this whole remote workforce is lasting much longer than we expected. Um, I think, you know, you're already hearing some companies talk about delaying returning to the office in 2022. So, you know, companies have to be very flexible to that. You know, we show about 78% of companies are willing to look outside their current city to find talent. So they are definitely supporting remote work still. Um, and it should definitely be an option in order to find talent in 2022. Well, that has to be one of the benefits for companies to remote work is you're you're not just uh, limited to whoever is in your actual office area. Absolutely. And it's definitely increasing competition for talent in different areas, right, which uh, may even affect kind of that wage growth. Um, a lot of companies are turning to outside firms, um, you know, like Robert Half to help them hire, manage, recruit that talent outside of their current areas. So it's definitely something companies should look at in 2022. Uh, back to employees. So since there is such a demand for workers, obviously the, the workers are in a better position than they often are. Uh, what should they think about? What sort of advice should they have as they're going through that interview process in order not just to get the job, but to get the best pay benefits and, and other maybe intangible things that they possibly can. Yeah, I would say definitely be flexible, right? And don't take advantage of the situation because again, it could turn at any time, but consider benefits outside of straight compensation. It might be, you know, working remote. Um, it might be additional training that, you know, in the past they might have to pay for through education or classes that they would sign up for. So I think companies are definitely more flexible in their benefits situation um, in order to get talent. And so it doesn't hurt to ask, uh, but certainly remain flexible. Thanks so much, Michelle Reisdorf, a Chicago jobs expert at Robert Half here in Chicago. It's Stock Picker Monday. Today we are talking about an investment that protects your entire portfolio from a so-called black swan event. We welcome Mark Holbert, investment columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Barron's and MarketWatch.com, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mark, it's always good to have you with us. So tell us about this strategy. Well, the idea in it, uh, you know, there are a lot of technical details, but at a conceptual level, the idea is that if you think there is a risk of something coming out of left field to just sabotage the market, for example, a pandemic, just to use a recent example, then having a more or less middle of the road conservative portfolio may not be the best course of action. And indeed, one of the suggestions has been have a portion of your portfolio that's very aggressive and another portion that's very conservative. And even though, quote unquote, on average, it's no more risky than that other portfolio that's sort of middle in the road, it may end up doing better than the one that uses, uh, for example, the 60-40 portfolio that's you know, thought to be a little more conservative, but in an era of low interest rates may not be all that attractive. And so the thought process is you're, you really are looking long term, right? Because you never know when the black swan event's going to happen. 
That's exactly right. That's a very good point. Black swans, by definition, are uh, unpredictable. So some people think that uh, they can say, well, I'll put this strategy in place if I think a black swan is going to happen. I would recommend against that. If you're going to do it, just uh, pick a strategy that's uh, very aggressive on the long side, very aggressive on the short side, and uh, uh, and follow it through thick and thin. One strategy that I've seen that actually has done well over the last 20 years it takes, uh, and again, don't do it on the basis of hearing me talk about it here on the radio, but basically it, the idea is you take a, just a couple percentage points of your portfolio every December 31st by a put option, which is a bet that the market will go down, and uh, just regularly rebalance that at the end of every year. And it, believe it or not, that simple strategy has done better than the market because both in the pandemic waterfall decline last year as well as 2008, it ended up resisting the decline enough so that overall it ends up doing well. And and you mentioned a, a small percentage of your portfolio. You, you don't want a significant, por- significant percentage done this way. Well, that's right. Think of it like it's fire insurance on your house. Almost every one of us would say we'd rather lose the money on the insurance than lose our house. But that doesn't mean you don't end up doing the same thing. And think of you take two or three percent of your portfolio bet, have it as a hedge if the market declines. It's like fire insurance and you sleep more easily at night. And so uh, this uh, for those people, yeah, sleep easily. And these are for the people who are really afraid of that black swan event and what might happen to their portfolio. Is this for people who are at, at, at maybe an earlier or later end of their investment life or does it really not matter? Well, that's a very good question. And I, you know, it really depends on uh, how long term somebody is. I mean, I think all of us can end up benefiting from a strategy like this. But I want to stress, don't do it on the basis of hearing something from me on the radio. Basically, people should talk about it with their financial planner and really go through it and only follow a strategy like this if you have the discipline and the patience to follow it over many years, because almost by definition, I'd say nine out of 10 years, you're going to end up losing money on the strategy. Thanks so much, Mark Hulbert, an investment columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Barron's and MarketWatch.com.